It was Abraham Lincoln who said, no man is poor who has a godly mother. I love that quote. And military heroes, many political statesmen, many ministers of the gospel, many athletes have attributed their development and the cultivation of their skills to their mothers and or their wives. So we see it all the time, don't we? When, you know, there's some sporting event and a guy makes the winning shot or scores the winning touchdown and they get the mic in his face after the game. And what does he say? Hi, mom, you know, and, and it's amazing. And, and oftentimes you think, you know, probably in a lot of those cases, there was a dad who taught that guy how to shoot or how to throw or how to catch. But moms have a special place in our hearts. I know that I am very, very thankful for my mother. And uh, I'm thankful for just the, the role that she has played in my life and really making me who, being a part of who God has made me to be. I'm just thankful for her faithfulness. I'm thankful for her counsel. Thankful for um, the cheerleader, cheerleader that she um, has always been to me. And thankful for just the, the faithful example and servant she has been, really a godly example to our entire family. And I, I'm also thankful that my wife has been that for myself and all of my kids. But you know, I'm also very, very thankful as a pastor for all of you moms and you ladies who are a part of our church family. Because we are so blessed by you. I've often said this, that I think the ladies in this church make up the heartbeat of our fellowship. And I know that I'm not speaking only for myself when I say that we, we, we are blessed ladies because you are a part of this church family. And this church family would not be really what it is without your touch and your grace and your love and all of your gifts. So can we give it up one more time for all the ladies here? And today we're continuing our study in the book of Esther. And today we're actually going to meet Esther. We haven't met her yet. And we're going to see in this text four things about Esther that are examples for all of us, but especially to you ladies who are maybe looking for a role model, someone to look to, a woman to look up to. And these are four traits that are worth noting and worth emulating and worth praying into our lives. But before we get there, we have some setup work to do um, before we get to those points today. And so chapter two, if you notice, it begins this way, after these things. And we have to pause there and ask the question, after what? things. And this is what we need to know is that there is actually a three-year gap between chapter one of the book of Esther and chapter two. And we 
receive, and we remember, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us that the banquet that was happening and going on was taking place in the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign. And then in chapter 2, verse 16, it tells us the events here in chapter 2 actually take place in the seventh year and the tenth month of his reign. And there is a year gap between verse 1 and verse 16 of chapter 2. So there is really over a three-year gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And if you haven't been with us, quick recap on chapter 1. This king, who was very, very arrogant guy, throws this party for six months, a six-month banquet where he invites all of the important people in his kingdom, all 127 provinces, to Shushan the Citadel, where he's living there in Persia, where his palace is, and they throw this six months party. And the purpose of the party is to illustrate how great he is, the grandeur of his kingdom, but it's also to win the military support of the leaders of all of these 127 provinces that he oversees. And the final seventh week of this six-month bash, the king decides that, that he's going to ask his wife, Queen Vashti, to come into this banquet where women were not allowed. This was just a, a men's gathering to really parade her, wearing her crown. And some people think that, that she, it meant that she would come in and she would be unveiled, which was really a, a disgrace. It was degrading in that culture. But other commentators believe that, that he was asking her, because if you recall last week, he was drunk when he made this request, that he wanted her to come in wearing only her crown, which would have been even more degrading. Well, Queen Vashti refuses to come. She says, no way, I'm not doing that. And the king gets angry. And he has this, you know, sense of an emergency here because, you know, it, it, it gets put to him that, hey, if you let her get away with this, all of the women, they're going to take over. We're going to be in trouble. So what does he do? He listens to his advisors. He doesn't humble himself. He doesn't ask for forgiveness, but he listens to his advisors and he ends up divorcing her and banishing her. And that's how chapter one ends. We come, though, to chapter 2, and in between chapters 1 and 2, history tells us that King Ahasuerus did try to invade Greece, and he was unsuccessful in conquering them. Now, I didn't see this movie, but if you saw the movie 300, that's what it was about, how Greece withstood the invasion of Persia and King Xerxes. Now, this is what you need to understand about history. Xerxes is Ahasuerus. Xerxes is his Greek name. Ahasuerus is his Persian name. And there's actually an ancient story that is still told today about the Grecian stand against Persia. That when Xerxes marched into Greece, he was ultimately defeated and, and humiliated. And it's reported that as he came in, he comes in contact with a, a Grecian general and he says to him, you need to surrender your arms. And the Grecian general says, you need to come and take them. 
In the movie, it was lay down your arms, and the Grecian general says, you need to come and take them. And to this day, that's the motto of the Greek army. And they tell this story to their kids growing up in the Greek school. And if you enlist in the military in Greece, they talk about how they crushed Xerxes. And so after two years... When we get to chapter 2, after these three years, as I, I mean, this battle has happened. The king, who has returned from this battle with his tail between his legs, he's dejected. And that's when we read this. And after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vastai and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Pause there for a minute and give me your attention. How many of you have ever made a mistake? (laughs) Raise your hand, all right, you know. (laughs) How many of you have ever done something stupid, all right? How long did it take you to realize it? Was it an hour? Was it a day? Was it maybe a month? Was it a year? It takes this guy three years, three years to to realize the mistake that he has made. How stubborn can you be? Hopefully it doesn't take you years to admit your mistakes. So the king is missing his wife. And let me just say this. When you are lonely, when you're depressed, when you're discouraged, You are in a vulnerable state. And when you are in a vulnerable state, you need to be careful of the counsel that you receive. Because when we are in a vulnerable state, we are susceptible to bad counsel. And this king is going to receive some bad counsel. Look at verse 2. The king's servants who attended him said... Let beautiful young virgins be brought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins from Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women. And let beautiful preparations be given them, and then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vastai. So here's the answer of these men. You need a wife. So let's have a Miss Persia contest pageant, and you can be the sole judge. And we're told that this thing pleased the king. He's like, I like that idea. What better way to get my mind off of everything going on than to parade beautiful women before me? So he loves this idea. But I got to say this. The solution that these men come to is the same one that I see people make every single day. They realize that there's a void in their lives and this is what they think. I need a person. I need someone who's going to fill this void in my life. But this is the problem that so many people make, is they seek to fill a void in their hearts with people or with things or with something. 
But the problem is that void can only be filled by God himself. Ahasuerus doesn't realize this. He thinks, another woman, a new queen, that sounds like a great idea. Now, as we come to verse 5, we are introduced to the two most important people in this story. Verse 5. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, when whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Pause there. The first person that we are introduced here to is a Jewish man by the name of Mordecai. And here we are told how he ended up in Persia. And what the author does here is he points back 118 years to a time when the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, invaded Jerusalem. And it was during the reign of Jeconiah, the king of Israel. And at that time, Mordecai's great-grandfather, Kish, and his family were taken captive and carted off to Persia. Which means, and this is important, you need to realize this, which means that Mordecai was born in Persia. So Mordecai is a Jew living in Persia. He's grown up in that culture. And we'll see in verse 19 that he actually has a job working for the king. But let's continue. Verse 7. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the young woman was lovely and beautiful, and when her mother and father died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So here we're introduced to Hadassah, also known as Esther. She is much younger than Mordecai, which means that she was also born in Persia. Somehow her parents died. She becomes an orphan, and Mordecai takes her and raises her as his own daughter. It's a role that will have ramifications that he would never even imagine. But I love the description that we're given here of Esther, that she was lovely and beautiful. In the original language, it means that she was beautiful in form and lovely to look at. So this gal, she's a looker. But here's the thing that we need to understand about her, and we'll see this, is she wasn't just a pretty face. Esther wasn't just beautiful on the outside, but she was also very beautiful on the inside. And that's what matters most. The name Hadassah is her Hebrew name, and it means myrtle. It's taken from the myrtle bush that gave off this beautiful fragrance. So her name could mean beautiful fragrance. Esther is her Persian name, and it means star. And I love what Ray Stedman, one of my favorite Bible commentators, points out. He says that Hebrew scholars, they translate the name Esther to mean hide or hidden. And what Stedman does is he combines these two definitions to form this idea that God had hidden his star, Esther, for his people in Persia. Esther was God's star, God's fragrant star, hidden in Persia for the people of Israel. Because God had not forgotten this orphan girl. 
But he had a plan that he was going to use her life in a huge way. Now, when Esther lost her mom and dad, she must have thought her life was over. She must have been so discouraged. It must have been so confusing to her to think, why would God allow this to happen? And maybe you've gone through situations like that. Maybe you're going through that right now, some difficulty where you're wondering, why would God allow this to happen? But Esther is going to discover that God had a plan for her life that was beyond what she could even imagine. That God would bring this godly relative into her life to love her and care for her and raise her in the ways of the Lord. Let's continue in verse 8. And so it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now, there are two important things that you need to make note of here to understand what's happening here in this story. Number one, the, the beauty pageant was a command and a decree, okay? You need to note that. It was a command and a decree, and the decree was that all of the beautiful women, the girls who were the young virgins who were deemed beautiful, would be brought to the palace. Now, the reason why you need to understand this is because I don't want you to picture in your mind all these little mini beauty pageants going on in the 127 provinces where these young girls are earning the right to go and you know be in the contest for Miss Persia. That is a wrong picture of this. Don't picture all these young girls, you know, sending their audition videos. That's not what's happening here. This was not desirable for anyone. Yes, one of these young girls would be chosen to be the queen, but the rest, quite possibly, a lot of them would end up in the king's harem. You see, the Persian kings, like many of those kings in those days, they had a wife, a queen, who was there for being his companion and to bear children. But then he had a harem full of concubines whose sole purpose was for his sexual pleasure. And if you were picked to be a part of his harem, it would mean that you would never have children, you would never marry and you would die an old maid. And no parent wanted that for their daughter. And most of these young girls didn't desire that either. So the first thing, this is a command. It's a decree. The second thing you need to note, in verse 8, it says of Esther that she was taken. Circle that word taken. Because the idea means that she was taken against her will. She was taken by force. That she was a reluctant participant in this whole thing. And again, I think some Bible commentators try to ignore this and they try to romanticize this story, thinking of it sort of like a fairy tale, like Cinderella, that where Mordecai and Esther are conspiring together in a way to, that they can advance Esther in a worldly fashion, that she can use her good looks to get ahead. That is not what is happening here at all. Esther is spotted for her beauty and she's taken against her will all to the dismay of Mordecai. 
which we'll see later in the story, because you see, both he and Esther know that if she's not chosen to be the queen, quite possibly there's a good chance she's going to end up in the harem. And dads, I want you to imagine that. Imagine how hard that would have been to have your daughter taken away and you know that you might not ever, ever see her again. At this moment, Esther and Mordecai, or Mordecai have no idea what God is doing. All they can do is trust him. And I think that's the hardest thing for a parent, isn't it? When you find yourself in a position where something's going on with your kids and there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. That's the hardest thing to have happen. And that's where, where Mordecai finds himself here. Now, I want to address at this point another error that many good Bible teachers make in interpreting the story of Esther. You see, oftentimes the point is made that Esther and Mordecai didn't even belong in Persia. And so the picture that kind of gets painted is that they were living in sort of a backslidden backslidden state, and that's how they end up in this whole mess. Now, why do some Bible teachers say that? Well, they say that because the Jews were given an opportunity to go in return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. But the majority of the Jews didn't go. They didn't leave Persia to go back to Jerusalem because they were quite comfortable in Persia. And that is a true statement. In fact, I told you that in our very first study here in the book of of Ezra. But the thing that you need to understand is that fact doesn't pertain to Esther or Mordecai or really any of their peers living at this particular time. And a quick history lesson lets us understand why. That decree was given, the decree to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem was given by Ahasuerus's grandfather, King Cyrus. It was given in 539 BC. The first group of Jews that left, left in 538 B.C., and they were led by a man by the name of Zerubbabel, and there was only about a 1,000 that went. Later that same year, another group went with a guy by the name of Ezra. We have his his story in our Bibles under the name Ezra, and and 50,000 left to go with Ezra. And I want you to know, From Shushan the citadel to Jerusalem, you're talking 900 miles. They're traveling across desert. They're traveling on foot. This was a difficult journey. So the first group goes out with Zerubbabel, about 1,000. The next group goes out with Ezra, about 50,000. But here's what you need to understand, and this is what what many good Bible teachers, they miss, is the time frame of the book of Esther takes place in 486 B.C. That's when King Ahasuerus' reign begins. Here in chapter 2, we're in 479 B.C. because we're in the seventh year. So it has been, get this, 59, almost 60 years since that first group left to go back to Jerusalem. Esther wasn't even born at that time. I mean, she, in order to be one of the young virgins being brought to be a part of this contest, she's 
barely 20 years old. She might have even been younger than that because women in, the, in that culture at that particular time, they married in their teens. She's still a young virgin. So she's at the most 20 years old at this time. And it's safe to say that when the first group left in 538 BC, Mordecai wasn't even born either. Because he had to be at least 20 years old to start taking care of Esther when she was orphaned. So he either wasn't born or he was a young man. If he was alive at that time, add 60 years to that, he'd be in his 80s right now. And that doesn't seem to fit with the story. So neither Mordecai nor Esther were even born when that first opportunity is given And it wouldn't be another 20 years from this point, 80 years in total, until another group left to go back to Jerusalem. And that's what a lot of people miss. And it wasn't like in that culture that you could just come and go when you wanted. And No, you you were under the reign of Persia, and Persia controlled the whole Middle East. So you couldn't get beyond the reach. And some have said, well, how come you know, Mordecai didn't just take Esther so she didn't have to be a part of this contest and go escape somewhere? Where would they go? Persia's reach was everywhere there in the Middle East at that time. So my point is this. It's very poor biblical exegesis to fault Esther and Mordecai for being in Persia at this time. They didn't have a choice. They instead are a good example for us of two people being born into a sinful world, being placed in a sinful society, trying to make their mark in a world that was not their home. They are two people who are putting an example before us of of the balance of living in this world and working in this world, but not being a part of this world. So they're thrust into this situation where all they can do is trust God. So all these girls are taken, brought to Shushan. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that there were probably close to 400 girls that were a part of this contest. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Now the young woman Esther pleased him. The him there is Haggai, the custodian of the women. And she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. And then seven choice maidens were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Now here's where I want to begin to point out four noteworthy things that we see here about Esther. The first is that she was beautiful on the outside, but also on the inside. We're told here that she catches the eye of Haggai, but I want you to notice the phrase in verse 9, she obtained favor, is pregnant with meaning in the original Hebrew. The literal translation for she obtained favor means she lifted up grace before his face. Don't you love that? She lifted up grace before his face. There was something about her, in other words, that was so different. Her countenance was grace magnified. And it's interesting that this description is used of Esther three times in this chapter. It's used first here in verse 9 in regards to Haggai. It's used again in verse 15 in regards to 
anyone who came in contact with Esther that she found grace. She lifted up grace before their eyes. And it was used in verse 17 of the king himself. In other words, there was an inner beauty in Esther that everyone noticed. Now, the Apostle Peter admonishes women in the New Testament to not just be concerned about their outer beauty. And I want you to notice that he says, don't just be. He's not saying, like, don't be concerned about your outer beauty. But he says, don't just, don't, don't let that be your focus, but he says, but cultivate what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, and this is what he says, which is of great worth in God's sight. This is the admonition that Peter gives to women is, hey, focus on your inner person more than the outer person. Don't neglect the outer person, but realize your true beauty is going to be seen in who you are on the inside. And Esther was a woman that was beautiful on the outside, but it was her inner beauty that caused her to stand out amongst these 400 other girls. So here she's taken against her will. She's thrust into this pageant with all these other girls. And and think about this. This This competition was probably intense. Because these girls, they knew what was at stake. But in the midst of this, Esther doesn't display a sour attitude. She was different. She doesn't display it's all about me attitude. But instead, she chose to model grace before this influential servant of the king. And that's a great grace or great trait to model. Let me ask you this question. What do you model in difficulty? I'll be honest, for me, it's sad that I don't always model grace. Man, I get, I get upset. I complain. I get discouraged. I find myself at times questioning, God, why are you allowing this to happen? But listen, if you want to be attractive and influence others when you are going through difficulty, ask God to shower you in his grace. So God's hand is on Esther. She modeled grace, and Haggai starts to give her special attention. And I think it's obvious that God is working at this point in the story. He's given her favor in the eyes of the custodian of the women, and he starts giving her extra spa treatments and the choice maidens to help her and the best of the best and trainers and beauticians, and and he moves her into the best place in the house. And from a human perspective, I think people would say, hey, that's not fair. No wonder Esther won. No wonder. I mean, she's getting all this special treatment. But I think that's the wrong way that that we need to look at this. What we need to see is that this is God coming alongside this young girl that is scared. And this is God's way of reminding her, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm in this. I haven't forsaken you. When everything around us, because God does that same thing in our own lives, and when everything around us is seemingly falling apart and it's filled with uncertainty, God has his ways of reminding us, I'm with you. You're not in this alone. I am here. I know in my life there's been times I've been really, really down. I've been really, really discouraged. And I'll get a text from somebody 
That's a word of encouragement. Or I'll get an email. Or I'll get a, a, a phone call. And God will use that to, to say, hey, hey, Rob, I, I'm with you. You know, sometimes when you've pastored a church for a long time, it's been said that churches can get what they call voice fatigue. That happens when you, you know, you're listening to somebody week in, week out, you know, um, sometimes here it's twice a week if you come on, on Wednesdays. And, and I, this is probably about 10 years ago. I was going through a, a time where I was, I was thinking, you know, I, I just was feeling like I wasn't connecting with our church family. And uh, it might have been in my head, but it was kind of what I was, you know, feeling. I feel like, man, they, they, they have voice fatigue. You know, they're tired of listening to me. And some of you are thinking, yeah, we were. Um, <laughs> and it was at that time that I literally started to pray and I started to wonder. It's like, Lord, am I done here? You know? And it was at that time that there was a couple other uh, kind of prominent churches that had reached out to me because their pastors were moving on and they were asking, you know, if, if, um, if I would, you know, consider kind of putting my name in, in the ring to be their, their pastor, so to speak. And so I'm praying through all of that and on one particular Sunday morning, there was a woman visiting here from Texas of all places, never met her. And after the message, she came up to me and said, God told me to tell you this. He's not done with you here. Isn't that crazy? It was God's way of just saying, you know, hey, but God does that. And I think everything that's happening right now with Esther was God's way of saying, hey, I'm with you. I've got you. The second thing I want you to note here is that Esther was teachable. Look at verse 10. It says, Esther had not revealed her people or her family. The idea here is that she's Jewish. For Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Now again, some Bible commentators take this too far, suggesting that Mordecai is being secretive here. That he isn't practicing Judaism and he's keeping his race and his religion a secret. And again, that is not the case because it's not consistent with the story because we're going to see in chapter 3 that there comes this moment when this guy by the name of Haman wants everyone to bow down to him and, and Mordecai's like, no, I'm not bowing down to you. And it becomes known, very known, that the reason is because he was Jewish. And Haman, this is a big part of the story, sets out to annihilate not just Mordecai, but all the Jews in the whole kingdom. So Mordecai is not being ashamed of who he is here. But he's being protective and wise. He doesn't want these other girls to lash out at Esther simply because she is Jewish. He's looking out for this girl that he raised as his own daughter. And he doesn't want her to unnecessarily put herself in harm's way. So he asks her here to show some verbal restraint. And Esther, because she's teachable, great trait, wisely listens to him, showing that she has this teachable spirit. But notice what it says in verse 11. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. This is so precious. He's worried. 
He's concerned. He's pacing. I would be him. I would be there, you know, every day pacing, just thinking like, what can I do? Lord, please help. And that's, that what he, that's what he's doing here. Notice verse 12. It says, each young woman's turn came to go to the king, Ahasuerus, after she had completed, this is kind of crazy, 12 months of preparation, 12 months to get an audience with the king. According to the regulations for the women, for thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying the women. Some of you ladies are going, that sounds amazing. (laughs) A whole year of spa treatments and beautifying. But there's a lot at stake here to get your date with the king. Verse 13, thus prepared each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. So whatever dress, whatever jewelry, whatever accessories, you you had your pick. Verse 14, in the evening she went and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines and she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. So this is like the bachelor Persia style, okay? That's what's happening here. You get one shot to spend the night with the king. So verse 15 tells us that it was Esther's turn. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So notice this. She only goes in with what Haggai advised her. So again, shows she's teachable. And it says that she found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Again, she's lifting up grace before all of these people. But the third thing I want you to note that we see in these verses is that Esther remained authentic. She requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised her. The idea in that is she doesn't overdo it. She doesn't overdo it. She she wasn't going to be someone that she wasn't. It was Chuck Swindoll who said this, being a person of integrity doesn't mean being perfect. It means being authentic. And authenticity is such an appealing quality in people. I hate it when I see somebody who's trying to be something that they're not, or be somebody whom they're not in order for them to be liked by other people. Can I encourage you? All of you here, but especially, because I think sometimes this this is a trap that gets put on women. Can I just encourage all of you ladies here, be yourself. Be who you are. Be who God has made you. Quit trying to impress others with your appearance or your spirituality or with your wealth or with your status. It was Warren Wiersbe who said this, life is full of imitations, which is why today's culture needs genuine, transparent people of God. People of purpose, not perfection. 
I love this about Esther, that Esther remained true to herself. And I think this is a, another great, attractive quality. It's one of the things that really attracted me to my wife when I first met her. When I first met my wife, it was up at the camp there at Twin Peaks. She was at Bible College. Now, I grew up in Orange County, okay? If you're familiar with Orange County, I mean, there's a a lot of flash that happens in Orange County. I think there's a a lot of people in Orange County that are trying to put on airs of being something that they're not. It's part of, I think it kind of is part of that culture there. It's one of the things I I love about where where we live, and I've always loved about this area, and I've really always loved about this church, is that I think, you know, this area is much more down the earth. But when I first met my wife, she was from Oregon, and, you know, she's up on the mountain, and she's, you know, wearing flannels and overalls before it was cool. I mean, you know, I mean, she's like this country bumpkin. She could just care less about what others were thinking about her. And I was attracted to that. I was like, man, who is this girl? You know, she seems so different. And I was so attracted to, to Jesus in her. And I love that she just continues to be that way today. But oftentimes I see many men and women trying to be something that God hasn't called them to be. And can I just encourage you, be yourself. Don't let others try to put you in a box of what a Christian or a Christian woman is supposed to be. Be authentic. Be who the Lord has made you. Be content with your calling. Be content with where he has placed you. Be content with the doors that he's opened up to you. And for all you husbands here, can I just encourage you in this? Support your wife in who God has made her to be. Don't pressure her to be something that she's not. Peter says that we as husbands need to dwell with our wives in understanding. And part of what that means is that we need to understand and come to discover how she has been wired and how she has been gifted and support that. Years ago, I was meeting with a husband in our church. And he was kind of complaining because he wanted his wife to be Something that she wasn't. He, he wanted her to be more involved in ministry, in church ministry and that type of thing, like other ladies that he saw here in the fellowship. And she was more content to serve her family. She was more content to, to let her ministry be you know, what she was doing at home. And so I asked him, I said, tell me, can your wife cook? He said, yeah, she's a great cook amazing cook. In fact, every day she gets up early and she makes me lunch and she makes our kids lunch. She's incredible as a cook. And I asked him, I said, okay. I said, that's, that's great. I said, um, how about, it? what's she like as a mom? She said, oh, she's a great mom. She's so devoted to our kids and so involved with our kids. And I said, what about, you know, how is she at like keeping the house? Oh, she's incredible. I don't have to worry about anything. How is she as a wife? 
Oh, she's a great wife. I feel so supported by her. And she's even, she was, she's interested in our sex life. I mean, you know, she's just great. And, I, and after, you know, about 20 minutes of hearing him go on, I said, you know what, bro? I just want to tell you, there's a lot of guys in this church that would love to be married to your wife. I said, I want to encourage you to stop getting on her for what she's not and what you hope that she would be, but to support her and praise her and affirm her in who she is. Compliment her in her authenticity. Esther remained authentic. Let's continue here, verse 16. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is in the month of Tebeth, In the seventh year of his reign, so Esther gets her turn here, knows verse 17. And the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. She obtained grace and favor. And again, the idea is, is he was attracted to something in her that went beyond her physical beauty. There was something about her inner character that drew him towards her. And as the story goes on, we're going to see he literally falls in love with her. He's going to give her privileges that no other queen or woman would have in that culture. And in the midst of all this, we see how God is working behind the scenes to orchestrate events for a greater good. He's putting his star Esther in this place so that she can have this opportunity to shine at the right time. And we'll get into that next week. But look at verse 18. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all of his officials and servants. So he puts on this feast, and she's the guest of honor. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. And when virgins were gathered together a second time, this is so more girls from the harem, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now this is why scholars believe that he worked for the king. Because in the ancient Orient, the gates of the city were the place where commercial and judicial and civil matters happened. So Mordecai's presence there in the gates seems to support the premise that he held the position of a counselor, if you would, in the king's system there. Look at verse 20, and we'll wrap this up. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as, that's the key phrase, as when she was brought up by him. Here's the fourth thing we see about Esther. She was humble. She's the queen now. But she's still listening to Mordecai. She's still obeying his counsel. She doesn't get puffed up in pride and thinking, you know, hey, I'm the queen now. I don't need to listen to him. But no, she she is still being teachable because she's moving in humility. Humility and teachability were the graces that caused her to shine brightly. And humility is such an attractive trait. You know what's attractive to God? The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The Bible says, exalt yourself, and he'll humble you. God will humble you. 
But humble yourself and he will exalt you. It's attractive to God, but it's also attractive to others. The Bible says that we're to clothe ourselves in humility. And the way that we do that is remembering who we are. It's remembering where we came from. It's remembering that we wouldn't be anything without the Lord himself. Esther stands out as this beautiful woman because she was beautiful on the inside as well as the outside. She was teachable. She was authentic. And she was humble. Those are some traits that for all of us to pray in and aspire that God would do that and work in our hearts.